Welcome to Kuden, the radio show and podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Sheehan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Sheehan Miller is a 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Sheehan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Well, good day. Welcome to Kuden. It's another great Friday, and we have much to discuss. I'm Eric White here with Sheehan Jeffrey Miller, and it's great to have you joining us. Many on the website of this call, many uh, have called in as well, and of course, uh, many get to this just uh, in later. We do this live, so if you're listening to one of these episodes uh, as a podcast, download a recording, know that you can join us live Fridays now at uh, 2.30 East Coast time and 11.30 West Coast time to uh, be able to ask questions and interact live with us on this show we call Kuden. And we start today with a, a really great question we kind of hinted at at the end of last show that came in, and we just didn't have enough time to kind of get to it, or it came in a little late. And, and uh, so I think this is going to be a great topic for for this episode, and it has to do with kata. And I'll just kind of refer to the question to, to start out, uh, and, and then uh, Mr. Miller will come in with, with the response on this. But it's really about uh, – this person asked about the value of kata in martial arts training. Is it, he asked, is it similar to uh, shadow boxing? Uh, to improve your boxing skills in the boxing ring. Uh, and he also, it's kind of a two-part, so so again, we'll have much to discuss. Um, does the learning of kata and demonstrating it in class against what he says are imaginary opponents really actually prepare you for real-life combat? So this question comes from Michael in Toronto. Thanks, Michael, for that one. And, sir, uh, I, I think this is a great question. I'm really interested to to hear from you about this. Okay, why did my research? Okay, because <laughs> I got this question more than nine minutes before the the show. Eric does this to me, right? Uh, any thoughts about what you want me to cover today? Well, let's pull this one out. Toss it to yourself. Anyway, um, yeah, but if you, if we go back to the the, the question, um, there's a there's a little thing there in the second part that tells me that this person's assumption about kata is the solo kata from karate because mm. he mentions fighting an imaginary partner. Okay, And while we can do that with our kata as well, our kata are laid out very differently, as you know, right? So there's always at least one opponent that you're dealing with. If we're doing uh, advanced uh, stuff in, in Koto, Kyoko, whatever, there's multiple attackers in Togakure Ryu, Holy crap, you've got all the way up to 32, right? Wow. 32, and they're all swordsmen. Of course, they could be spear or whatever, but there's this whole section in the scrolls for dealing with uh, the armed attacker from a muto dori standpoint, uh, and all you have is something for distraction. So you could have Senbak Shuriken, you could have Matsubishi, something like that. But, uh, see, then people start to think about, uh, you know, wild, crazy things like, uh, you know, wow, aren't you tired after you defending against 32 people? It's not really that cut and dry. Stop watching Chuck Norris mm. movies, right? Mm -hmm. They're not so uh, nice about coming in one or two at a time, right? 
um, at any point somebody can step forward or four of them can step forward and stab you in the back, right? So uh, it's really about making a hole and getting the hell out of there and, and changing the paradigm. But uh, anyway, back to this kata thing. Uh, the, what I did was I just, just to make sure, and, and after the show is over, I will be posting two kanji. There are actually, I think, 16 kanji in uh, the Sino-Japanese uh, uh, language, right, uh, that are pronounced kata, okay? Mm. Several of them mean form, like there's one that means form uh, that looks like somebody in a karate pose uh, that's, that's sometimes used not as, like today, if we looked at the things that are used today, um, almost exclusively there is a kanji uh, and you'll see you'll see what's posted. It almost looks like um, I don't know a two-story building or something like that, with the wind blowing up against it, um, uh, with like three strokes, three diagonal strokes, um, and that is the one that's almost universally used in most karate, uh, in, the, in the way the, the kata names are written out in most karate organizations. Uh, including the international federations and things like that, okay? And so remember, they're both kata, right? And uh, a lot of these uh, a lot of these kanji, if you just look at them, it's just going to be translated to form. But uh, you, gotta, you have to dig deeper, right? So hmm. uh, in some cases, you can dissect the, kamai, or the, the kanji, sorry. You can dissect the kanji and get a better understanding of what's being conveyed, or you can look at uh, sub-meanings, okay? And that's what I'm going to do today, because I just I like doing that, right? Uh, if you went through the Ninja no Hachimon course, like almost the entire first lesson covered things like the three aspects of a ninja and broke the kanji down into its uh, sub-pieces, right? Um, so we could get our heads wrapped around what it is really that we're talking about, about becoming, right? So then we can set out on the path. But if you don't know where you're going, you don't know where you're starting from, that path is going to be all over the place. Kind of like a kid that, that gets a dot-to-dot -dot picture, you know, uh, when right. puzzles, but they can't count numbers. So they just, they just know that you're supposed to connect the dots. They just take a crayon or a pen or whatever and just start drawing lines between dots um, you can do that, right? Of course, you're free to do that, right? But are you going to get the intended end result? Um, maybe, like a really just you know distant maybe kind of thing. So um, that's the same thing when we're playing around with with these ideas, right? So by and large, when I get these this this question, it's usually of the same variety, and what they're looking for is an answer to the validity of, well, you know, how can one of these solo strings of techniques, you know, where you're envisioning a uh, an imaginary attacker, uh, how can that possibly get you ready for combat? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit, right? Um, but the, the real answer is there's going to be two kanji posted on the on page uh, or sent out via email with the links and everything for folks. Um, but the one that we use, and the one that's sometimes used in other martial arts, looks very different, okay? And so its translation, while you can say form, 
um, it's really more akin to a pattern or a model or something like that. And I'll go into these in just a bit here. But uh, So uh, if, if we break these down a little bit, we really need to differentiate between the two. So if we look at the one that's most commonly used in the karate world, its conventional translation is shape, form, or style. Okay, shape, form, or style. And it's made up of two, well, it's made up of, of a one kanji and then um, a radical. Okay? Radical is way, one way to identify kanji. You can count strokes or you can understand the radical that's, that's there and all that. And so... You know, again, you have to really dig deep. Okay, so if we break the kanji down, this is this is the kanji when you're looking at it uh, on the on your list when you get it. It's the one that has uh, a character on the left and a, and a character on the right. The character on the right is just three diagonal lines coming in. So just to help you uh, translate, because I can't say okay when you're looking at the kanji for kata, right? Uh, that's not going to help, right? Uh, so. Uh, Again, generally translates as shape, form, or, or style. But if we break these down, right, uh, the one on the left, okay, one on the left um, is uh, itself has the translation of even or level. Okay, uh, there's a there's another translation for it, which is to raise with both hands or both arms. Okay, to lift something up, and uh, sometimes what's implied here or people describe that it's a picture of a vessel of some sort, a canister, a container, a jar, whatever, okay? Um, and then the one on the, the part on the right are these three diagonal uh, slashes, which when you look up that kanji, that kanji, um, it, it's difficult to find it, right? Uh, so I've seen it translated as water and all that because, you know, the, the kanji for uh, Niwa or river, right, has these three lines, but the lines are vertical, okay? So, you know, maybe, right, maybe it was turned on its side or whatever. But then other people look at it, and uh, or if you look this up, uh, generally speaking, just as a kanji, what you're going to see is the character for san or three, also used as an honorific. So, okay, three vessels, three whatever, maybe, okay? Maybe it's water, okay? It's a vessel for carrying water, which can also be uh, seen symbolically in the philosophical teachings uh, to represent clarity, knowledge, wisdom, the enlightened mind, that kind of thing, right? So maybe, right? But if we just break it down and look at them, we're looking at even or level, uh, something to raise something with both hands, whatever, okay? Um but the three on the side, the three strokes on the side, as a diagonal that way, um, you actually have to look up the radicals, okay? And it means hair, okay? So if we look at both together, what we're looking at is the shape or form of hair or to shape or form hair. So you're creating a model. You're creating this, this form, right? You're creating a shape whether you're putting it up in a top knot like a samurai might do or you're just cutting it to a certain design or style or something like that, right? Uh, and style is even a part of this uh, definition, okay? So it's to style hair or whatever. So the whole idea here is you have this form. You have this very specific way to get the hair into a, into a certain position, and then that's where it stays, right? That's the intended thing. You, you've got this created shape 
or uh, outline or you know whatever. Okay, uh, does that make sense so far to you? Hmm. At least? Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, does that make sense? Okay, so the, the connotation is it's something you're going to put in place or that's been put in place, and it's going yeah. to stay that way. Okay, it look. Mm. This is this is a determination of look or style. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's definitive of a style. All right, something you know that just it helps to define. Right, but the the other character for kata that you're going to see is it's going to look like three. Uh, three, there, it looks like there's three parts to it, okay? Uh, the top part has this same uh, kanji for shape, or for, I'm sorry, for uh, even or level, that kind of thing. It's, it's to the left, and then uh, to the right of it, okay, they're both sitting above a, a third one. But to the right, there's two vertical bars. One kind of looks like a, a J, right? Uh, hmm. Together, so I'll, I'll talk about these in a minute. And then below that, there's a third thing that kind of looks like a, I don't know, a weird platform or spinny top or something like that, right? Um, but the, if, if anybody's been around for a while and you study the Gogyo, the bottom character should be familiar because it's one of the uh, kanji that represent one of the five elements in the Gogyo, not the Godai, okay? Um, so uh, this kanji conventionally... Um, uh, translates to pattern or model or type. Okay? Not style, not form, okay? not a, a particular shape. Pattern, right? something that you can use again and again. Okay? Uh, model, right? an example of something. Right? It's something to represent. Right? And then mm. type. Okay? Uh, uh, by extension, the translations law and mold are also there okay, for the same concept, right? Uh, and then, so if we break this down, the top part together, top part together, um, both left and right characters actually forms one concept, a six-stroke concept um, in the classification. Okay? So they're not, uh, well, the, the top is shown as a seven-part, too, but... Uh, what we're looking at here is that part means punishment or penalty, and by extension, law. So that's what the law part comes in, right? Mm. Punal, uh, punishment, penalty, or law. And then mm. the bottom part, right, is the uh, character uh, for uh, dole or earth or soil. Okay? Not to be confused with chi, this uh, essence of earth, right? When we talk about chi, chi si ka fu ku, uh, hmm. Those are the Chinese, and they're talking about the essential nature of something. Hmm. Okay, they could be talking about the actual thing, but generally speaking, they're not. Okay, um, like when we say sea uh, for water, you know, if you go to Japan, you ask for a glass of water. If you ask for a glass of sea, you, they're going to look at you like you're retarded because you're not getting it, right? You ask for a glass mm-hmm. of mizu, right? Mizu is water, the actual liquid water. Okay. So it's very different, right? Just like chi for uh, earth is this essential nature, right? Stability, uh, command, uh, solid structure, mm. that kind of thing, right? As opposed to dole, which is earth or soil, actual dirt, the ground you stand on, mm-hmm. okay? Um, uh, anyway, so... Um, 
so what we're looking at here is uh, you can translate the punishment and the penalty part as uh, something you're dishing out, right, or that you're that there's this uh, connotation could be on the other direction that if you don't get this right, you're gonna you're gonna suffer, right? Um, and then the earth part here is really about nature and stability, okay? So um, something that's solid and foundational. Just like when we look at uh, the kanji uh, ichi in the in the kamai ichi monji, right? Um, you know, we conventionally just very quickly for for students tell them that the, this is the um, uh, figure one posture, right? Because that's what it literally mm -hmm. translates to, figure one. But the name of the kamai, Ichimonji, is pointing you to go look at and understand monji, the character, ichi, the kanji character for the, for one. Because that kanji character doesn't just mean one, it also means foundation, it also means uh, elemental, it also means basic, uh, you know, th those, so it's pointing to the mm -hmm. fact that this is your base, right? So it's the same mm -hmm. thing with this, right? Um, so there's this, um, I would contend that we're looking at a, uh, at a training model or a scenario-based kind of thing. So here's a model, right, um, that will help mold you to be able to conform to uh, the, uh, the essential important pieces, right, or the law, so to speak, of, uh, of combat or whatever it is you're doing, because they use this kata in uh, tea ceremony and all that kind of stuff, and although I think that kind of is different, right, because you stick to a set thing, right, but um, our kanji is different. It's laid out differently because it's pointing to something different. It's pointing to the fact that this is a model or an example, and if we go all the way back, predating the kodu predating uh, Kotoryu, predating uh, a lot of these, uh, several of the nine lineages, right, actually were in, developed during this period when, uh, you know, if you look at Kodoryu, right, which literally, literally means old school. If you look at this era when these things were invented, right, so when historians say that the Budokan lineages, right, are not Kodoryu, right, some are structured as though they were, right, but uh, like Togakure view, right, a lot of these historians, and Bujinghan people get up in arms, I mean, they just go freaking bananas when somebody says that the Bujinghan lineages, especially Togakure view and some of these other ones, are not Kodiu, right, and they're not going to argue about it. And, you know, our guys could just go freaking nuts, right, but they're right, hmm. they're not Kodiu, right, our guys from this ignorant Western, just rough translation you know, Kodiu, old school. Oh, well, ours are old school, so, you know, it must be, you know. Uh, no, there was a whole era, there was a whole period in Japanese history where if a school was developed during that time, there had to be a very specific structure to their, uh, to their scrolls. They had to be mm. laid out a certain way. They had to be structured a certain way, right? There had to be a kata to <laughs> the, the first kanji, right? There had to be mm. a structure and a form to the layout of the school for it to be considered a kodiu, okay? Hmm. The, 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 the misunderstanding, a.k.a. ignorance, of those arguing about the kodiu thing or arguing with 
educated professors and historians of Japanese history, what they're missing is that our lineages are too old to be Kodyu. So if we said that in English, they're too old to be old schools. Hmm. Because they were formulated before the Kodyu era or, or, or time period in history, right? So, um, yeah, so we don't argue about that. But if we go far enough back and we look at the Togakure scrolls and the layout of them, right, what you see is something very, very interesting, and that is that there's these different categories for training. Like there's, uh, you know, things for rolling and leaping. There's things for uh, unarmed against swords. There's things for uh, just different areas, right? Uh, yeah. Climbing and hiding, things like that, right? But what you're only go- what you're going to find are two to maybe five uh, kata listed. So for the kata collectors, this has got to be one of the easiest lineages to learn because there's only two here, three here, five there, whatever, hmm. right? I think the only one that's the only category that had like nine, um, besides the uh, the uh, secret sword uh, things that has nine models, right? Uh, but the uh, the escaping rat uh, things where you're unarmed or you have Shudiken or, or Metsubishi against two, four, and they're, they're, they double each each one, right? So mm. first against two, then four, then eight, then 16, then 32, right? Uh, that category of, of things, maybe I think that has nine as well. But the point of these things is that it's in true fashion – and this is the perfect kanji for it because they're all examples. You don't have two or five or whatever ways of doing things. What you have are two, three, five, nine, whatever, models or examples that teach you the principles and concepts being conveyed, and then it's your job to go off and develop more for yourself based hmm. on those same, those same principles. So back a long time. This was developed during periods of warfare, right? Long time ago. So there were no dojo. Okay? The Kodyu concept came along with the development of formal dojo that were founded by warriors that now had to make money or had to support their families or whatever, but there was no warfare going on. So that's how dojo developed. Before that, you had this idea of an an or something like that. An an is a, is a retreat or a refuge. Okay? Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it could be like a, like a, a, a ski uh, hut or chalet, not a chalet, but you know what I mean, where you're mm-hmm. up in the, in the mountains and things like that. And these things are hmm. just kind of stocked. Some people leave behind some supplies for other people. It's kind of a share and use as, as you need kind of thing. Right. Right. So it's that kind of concept where it would be empty, or you could go go on a mushishukyo and visit the hermitage or house or whatever of a warrior that you heard about, and you would be taking a letter of introduction or something like that uh, to him, and here's this old warrior or whatever, and you want him to teach you something, but you're only there for a day or three, maybe uh, maybe a week or whatever, not very long, right? Um, I mean, if somebody say a month, that was just too much time. They had to get back for duties and things like that. They had responsibilities. So what they would do is they would go off, right? 
And, I mean, think about it. How much can you learn in a day or two days or whatever, right? Maybe a technique or two, right? Hmm. So this guy is going to teach you something, and then you're going to go back into the world with those two models and work the hell out of those things to come up with, you know, to internalize them. But now you don't just have two techniques. You have two models or examples for approaches to a particular Mm -hmm. problem or whatever, and you're going to work with that and develop other ways to do it. It's just it's added to your body of knowledge, and then you're going to personalize that. Okay? So the approaches are very, very different. The first kanji for kata, this shape or form or style, is used in lineages where you may not change the form. This is the official way to do it. There's only one way to do it. This is the way it looks here. Okay? Like the hairstyle. This is Mm. the style. Mm -hmm. This is the way it's done. Okay? So it's a preservation method. Now, let's go back to the first question, which is how could this possibly be used for warfare? Well, it was developed actually during times of warfare uh, by these warriors who, what they would do in between battles to stay fresh on their techniques, to stay fresh on their, uh, on their skills, was they would string basics together so they could practice solo and, you know, they, they, so their, their kicks and their strikes and their sword cuts and, and all that stuff didn't get rusty. Right? So it was just a way to kind of stay up on these things. But what they were doing was they were honing the individual's skill, what we might call in our art, what we might call the Waza approach, where you're hmm. focusing on individual skills, individual actions, right? They just strung them together. And then as the dojo idea took over and the kodyo idea took over, these forms or patterns became solidified, right? So here's this pattern. But, see, along with the dojo approach and this kodyo approach to kata, using solo kata, the overriding approach in a lot of these places was actually an approach or an approach to, to um, enlightenment. Because a lot of the people that were training, back in the day, I mean, you're paying somebody who, um, you know, is trying to make a living for his family and all that. Uh, the only people that could afford to go to a, to a dojo like that were ones who had money, okay? So mm. it really chafes me when people just show their ignorance of history when they complain about the expense of training. And, you know, historically, you could just go somewhere and the guy would just, like, train you. Yeah, okay, maybe after scrubbing his floors for a year and proving that you're not going to run away or, you know, you're actually going to be able to put up with hard work and just do what the sensei says because that's what he says, uh, maybe, maybe, right? But, again, ignorance of history. So, sorry, that's my little scheduling thing here. So um, uh, the, the, one of the principles for this um, is Zen mind, Okay. So, again, while a lot of folks assume that we must be doing something like we're imagining these attackers coming in, we may be. But if you look at some of the historical writings by guys like Funakoshi and and guys like that, right, they allude to this Zen thing because you're not staring out into space visualizing an attacker. You're staring at the tip of your lead hand or whatever the action is, and you're focusing on that to the exclusion of all else. 
right? That's Zen mind. That's more of a moving meditation than mm-hmm. it is about combat, right? So when we talk about kata, even this type of kata, we have to be very, very clear about what it is that we're, we're talking about. Are we talking about kata for the sake of enlightenment, which looks like combat, or it looks like combat techniques, but that's not the end game, right? Or are we talking about this string of, of moves to hone and get really good at our basics and string them together for those times when we may need them and we're using it as a way, of course, to learn, but we're also using it as a way to stay fresh between battles. Kind of like when I was a police officer, taking time during my time off from, from duty to go to the shooting range and practicing my draw shooting, uh, reloading skills, and all that. I mean, I still do that, right? So that's that's what that kind of kata is because when I'm practicing that at the range, that's a solo kata. I'm mm. practicing trigger pull. I'm practicing draw and shoot. I'm practicing uh, the reload uh, sequence. You know, um, that they're all kata, right? But we would call those waza because they're individual actions that our kata are built from. But see, here's that confusion again, right? So we've got this kata. How's this different? Okay. Well, the difference is is that there is an end game. There is an there is a partner or more than one partner throwing specific attacks at you, and you are doing this model that already has these pieces strung together in a logical uh, thing. But there's a lot of feedback, right? And if you get it wrong, there's negative consequences, also known as punishment, or there's a penalty for it, right? If you're open, if your distance is wrong, if your angling's wrong or whatever, you get tagged. And that, the, the definition there for the sub-definition of law, points to universal justice, hmm. right? And that is universal justice. You don't just go through your patterns and both people join the mutual admiration society, right, and just go through the motions because that's what the kata says, no, the implication is that your partner, the guy playing the role of the uke, or girl, right, if you present something that's not covered and is within range, they're going to reach out and tag it. Okay? In Isuzuka Sensei's dojo in Japan, if we screw up, your, partner's a, your partner is not allowed to tag you. He is supposed to tag you. Hmm. Okay? How else do you learn? How else, right. do you remi- how else are you reminded to stay covered if there isn't continual consequences or punishment or a penalty for getting a piece wrong. It's been proven by scientists that we learn things faster by mistakes than we do by, you know, praise or whatever. So the implication here, and then the earth-soil kind of thing is it's about this foundation. It's about uh, get these things right. So... The, the pattern is teaching you the critical, we would say, principles and concepts necessary so that when you are doing something that doesn't look like the pattern, you're still doing the same principles and concepts. So eventually, so one method, the, the first kata method, is to preserve the style. This is the way it's done. This is the shape of it. This is the hairstyle, right? This is the way it looks for us. There is no changing. The second kata model, the implication is that you will be able to create other models, other types, other patterns 
that do not deviate from the base law or this fundamental um, earth foundation, right? So you will grow beyond the forms. You will grow beyond the patterns because you're picking up the law or the, uh, you know, the, the mold is teaching you something, right? It's going to mold you into this new person, right? Um, so <laughs> it's funny. In the first one, it's a shape. It's a form, right, that you take on. Your body has to adapt to it, okay? The second kata, the one that we use, is there to mold you, to help you recreate yourself and adapt to being able to do these things. So one is a do it this way, you conform to it. The other one is designed to mold you so that you can be a living, walking, talking example of more than just uh, a style. You can even hmm. want to create your own style, so to speak. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I so, like you touched on the difference kind of there between two, the, the kata and waza, you know, two things that we hear a lot in the dojo when we're working on different things. Uh, this is right. a waza versus this is, you know, this is chino kata and this is chino waza. And, uh, you know, touching on the difference, the waza really break down the individual skills and actions. That's I liked hearing about that. Yeah, so, you know, we, we look at things, when, when uh, karate people look at their kata, they see the different pieces, but to them it's the step-by-step -step pieces of this form, this thing that must be done, okay? We see our, our elemental pieces, the waza, the little actions, shifting into ichimonji, delivering uke nagash, uh, throwing a ski, kind of just extending the arm for ski. That, that doesn't include stepping, right, just to how the arm extends and all that, right? These waza, we see them as pieces of an overall model for actual combat, and we know it's for actual combat because there's a partner trying to punch you in the face. Actually, they would have tried to stab you in the throat, right? Mm. Um, so... Uh, you get direct feedback, but they're strung together. Like a song is composed of a series of notes. So we had that, right? But we, once we understand the flow of music and, and tempo and all that, then if we were in music, we could change the key, and by changing the key, we might have to change uh, notes, right? We might have to uh, change things because uh, we are... Um, we are uh, we're, we're we're in a different range. So mm -hmm. uh -huh. but, um, one of my teachers explained this uh, from our context, and that in the very beginning of your training, if you're doing topic training, um, it's going to look like it, you know your handwriting did when you first learned to write the alphabet. Right? When you first learned to write it. There was this block printing, right? So an A, the letter A, you know, the capital letter A, was this TP tent-looking kind of thing with a crossbar, right? And you practiced a lot because the whole idea was to get that shape right, right? But you were learning how to just control and get coordination of your hand and arm and fingers to make that within a given range, you know, between the top line and the bottom line. You couldn't extend past the top line. You couldn't extend past the bottom line. But you couldn't also fall short either, right? So you did that with all the letters of the alphabet, and then you learned to write words with those characters and all that, right? But what did intermediate training with the alphabet look like? 
cursive writing, right? Mm-hmm. So the letter A was now no longer like a tent. It looked like a giant lowercase A used to be, but you didn't make just like a, a lowercase C and a vertical bar on it. You didn't connect, you didn't connect a, an undotted I with a, a lowercase C, right? Um, it was one flowing kind of thing. So you're learning how to flow. So instead of going start, stop, start, stop, start, stop to make these make these complete characters, you learn to make the character, you know, make one flow. There's several parts to it, but there's one flow because now when we write words with this, each letter is going to flow into the next one, into the next one, into the next one until the word is formed, right? So it's it's uh, it's an advanced skill, right? From the first one, where the kata, the first kata-based kind of arts, it really is that start-stop, start-stop kind of thing, and it's just about just getting better and better at that thing. But if you look at those arts, when they break out and do what we would call randori or sparring, they, it doesn't look anything like the kata. But the kata mm-hmm. are supposed to be the combat things. Well, apparently not. Kata training is for one thing. Sparring training is for something different. Hmm. Okay? Very different. In our art, the kata is supposed to be what's used for sparring. And if not whole kata, right, you're not using the whole kata. You're actually creating things by being able to string your waza together in an unbroken uh, manner hmm. against whatever they're throwing in essence, creating a pattern or creating a one-of-a-kind model or pattern or whatever for people to learn from, but also it will probably never happen that way ever again, but all of your waza look exactly right. Okay? But hmm. our kata, see, where the first kata, they have these long strings right, to defend against an individual person. In our kata, in that moment where he throws the perfect attack, and you do the whole kata, it's supposed to be over in four moves or less, right? Ten seconds or less. Um, and you catch that one attack. Bang. Done. Now, do we have kata that have more than one attack? Yes, of course. But the first attack or the second attack where you're only doing uke nagash, you are protecting yourself and collecting information defending yourself and paying attention to what he's doing and waiting for that ideal thing. You're letting things go by that you can't use, right? You caught me off guard, not ready for this yet, right? He's throwing another one, mm, okay, ah, now I see what this guy attacks like. So when he throws that one that you're ready for, you do your kata, boom, 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 done. Hmm. But people miss this because their head, they're in an art that teaches one kata, the second one, the one I'm talking about, but their head is wrapped around only doing it the way the karate-based kata implies. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, well, it makes me think back, too, to some of the exercises we've done where uh, I'm, try- I'm thinking of the one, I think you called the belt tag, where, you know, because we really don't do oh, yeah, yeah. We sparring did, uh, things, yeah. but... Yeah, we we yeah. we kind of put on some gear, a little bit of you know hand, uh, head and hand gear and that kind of thing, and we tuck these little pieces of belt into different spots and try to remove them from the opponent, and you know that that gives that kind of sense of like, okay, you can't you can't just 
throw off this perfect kata. Uh, when I think back to my experiences with that, it, you know, what what I brought out of that was footwork and kamai were that were were kind of the gross things that spilled out from that. And I think kind of what you're you're saying here, getting back to some of those waza pieces that like senundo practice, and those were the things I really felt afterwards. Like, oh yeah, you know, I didn't think about you know, throwing like this great onikodaki or something. It was really about positioning footwork and then, you know, using kamai to cover different things. It is a great exercise. I really enjoy that one. Yeah, yeah. What what uh, Eric's uh, alluding to is this game that we play, and it's a bridge between what karate people would call one-step sparring. Uh, we, have a, we have a drill where, uh, uh, what do you call this, uh, circle of confidence. We just did the other day in class with, with people. And what we do, it's kind of like martial arts version of monkey in the middle, okay? So, and it's just about developing your kamai, okay? So you've learned some kamai. Now what we're going to do is we're going to put you in a dynamic um, atmosphere and not just get you all suited up and throw you at somebody because you're not ready for that yet, right? What we want to do is we want to gauge and assess how well your kamai are coming out in the spur of the moment when you need them and don't have time to think about them and that in itself points to how much more kamai repetition training you need to do because it's not wired into muscle memory well enough yet. Okay? Um, I often talk about this training method between kata and waza, uh, like uh, being in a high school or college class that has a lab, right? Uh, horticulture or chemistry or whatever, right? So you're in a classroom. And you learn about these different things, you learn about these different chemicals, you learn about reactions, whatever, right? And then you may have a lab day. So you go to the lab and you've got this assignment. So you go through the thing and one of two things are going to happen, or one of three things are going to happen, right? Either it's going to work out the way you learned in class. So, okay, great. I learned that I, I got this right, right? Or it's going to go horribly wrong. Right where uh, you get uh, just either no reaction or you get this, you know, crazy reaction or whatever, right? And you were worried about that in class that if these things go together the wrong way or the wrong times or whatever, right? What mm -hmm. what happens then is this, right? Build up heat or whatever. Okay, I'm mm -hmm. not a chemist, but right. So, um, or the third thing is you get a response or a reaction that mm, isn't in your notes. That's odd. Let's turn purple. It's supposed to be clear. <laughs> and the option, the other thing was, if it didn't turn clear, it might turn yellow or a faint green or whatever. This is purple, right? So what does that point to, right? So you, what you did originally is you took your kata training, right, your form training, and you took it to the lab for some experimentation, for some, for some dynamic training, right? And then questions or other things came out of that, and then you take that back to the classroom to ask the professor and or to study some more or whatever, and then with your new knowledge, you take that back to the lab. So in the dojo, that's what we do between kata training and waza training. On a bigger level, uh, on a bigger level in the dojo, you're always doing kata training, even when we call it waza training, because it's all about learning. Right? It's more the book knowledge. It's more about your teacher lectures and gives you some things to play around with or whatever. But nothing in the dojo is ever fighting. Even when you're sparring, right? Yeah. I mean, people that yeah. do that, 
Um, okay, maybe, but see, they always, almost always want to put rules in place or whatever, right? But then you go out into the world and you practice some things, and I'm not, uh, I'm not advocating getting into fights or whatever, but you go out into the world, you watch people walk, you practice certain methods of movement or whatever, or you're moving around the world and you go, hmm, how would I do that on this terrain or in this parking lot or in this elevator or whatever, right? So, that, see, it brings up questions. Because you're trying to apply the knowledge, even if you're not doing it physically, you're overlaying the knowledge on the real world. And then you come back to the class and you've got more enlightened questions about very specific things to add to your body of knowledge. And it just keeps going back and forth, right? So anyway, we have this, this circle, of, uh, circle of confidence. And really what it is is everybody takes a turn going into the center. And whoever's in the center, everybody on the outside, right? takes a turn to go into to the person in the middle, move around a little bit, right, kind of mix it up so you're not standing and practicing from a static start position. So you're moving around, and whenever they're ready, they throw, punch, grab, kick, whatever. And it's at that speed uh, that matches the felt color of the person who's, who's defending, right? So as they go, what the person in the middle is doing is, is avoiding, and they should be avoiding in Kamai to the best of their ability. And then what we're going to do is evaluate what that was like and which Kamai needs some work, okay? Is it timing? Is it distancing? Is it actual form of Kamai? That kind of thing. So that's, it's a really safe thing to do. Sometimes we just do it with other partners, and your partner is throwing one attack, asking if you're ready to throw another attack, and you're just avoiding in Kamai, all right? So we would call this one-step sparring. There's no form to it that I'm giving you. You're just kind of building it based on what they're throwing at you. And then, you know, way up, the, the end goal is they can throw whatever they want at full speed and try to trick you and all kinds of things, right, that we call full sparring. This thing that Eric was alluding to is kind of a stepping stone out of circle of confidence or that kind of training up toward more duking it out, getting punched in the face kind of things, okay? So what we're doing is we, we took the, I don't, know, I don't know if it's in any other part of the world, but in, in the U.S. here, you know, we have American football, as opposed to what we call soccer, right? Everybody else calls soccer football, right? So anyway, um, so we have this American football, and in many places, for the younger children, they've created a flag football model, okay? So nobody gets tackled. You're running along. You've got this belt on, and it has, I don't know what, two or three flags hanging off of it. They're just little mm -hmm. strips, streamers, right? And somebody comes up, and they don't have to tackle you because kids are young. We don't want them to get busted up and all that because they they don't even have bones yet. They have cartilage, right? So they just pull a, pull a flag and throw it on the ground, and that's where it's counted as a tackle. So what we've done is expanded on this, and people put on sparring gear and all that, and then we put uh, – I just I cut old belts um, so that, you know, everybody has the same color, right? So one guy might be wearing all red, and his opponent that he's facing has blue or whatever, right? It doesn't really matter. But we have these things, and what we do is we uh, put them in very sensitive areas, targets that you should be protecting and targets that most people don't think about protecting. So we have one right in the front of the belt, so it hangs out over the knot of the belt. So now we're looking at the gut groin region, right? We have one at the back of the belt hanging off um, the lumbar tailbone region, okay? So getting stabbed or punched in the in the spine, not a good thing, or in the kidneys or whatever. Okay? So it's covering a region. 
uh, we stick one in the, uh, in, the, in the sparring helmet so it hangs out in front of the forehead. So, again, that's head shots, face shots, that kind of thing. And then what we do is we tuck two into the gloves so they stick off the hand uh, right about where the knuckles are. So this is for people smacking at your at your wrist or reaching out and being able to grab or whatever because in a lot of these sparring gloves, you really can't grab. So, And then the game is once you start, you get moving around, and each person is trying to pull two uh, flags from their partner before they lose two. Okay. Uh, later on, we bucket. We we have a two two tag or two flag rule, but only if one of them was was a hand and maybe something to the gut or whatever. But a headshot is they only need one kind of thing. But the whole idea is uh, people find out very quickly that if they only focus on getting the other guy's stuff, they lose their flags very very quickly. Right? Because mm. they'd be getting punched or kicked or whatever. They're wide open. So how do I do what I need to do from a good Kamai base using timing, tricky uh, movement, distractions, whatever, or wait for him to make that move to come in on me, and when he comes in, I catch his flag while I'm evading. So the same stuff we're learning in the step-by-step kata, but, you know, I mean, everybody has fun with this, right? These are just cool games but it reinforces the need. And then as you move up through the ranks, we don't play flag anymore. We have the gear on for safety, but if you get in range, you get hit. If you, you know, uh, are overzealous, you get hit. If you uh, expose your targets, you get hit, right? So punishment or a penalty for violating the law of your foundational principles and concepts, right? So it all fits. Right, um, and Rondori really means to catch the moment, right? To catch that spot. So uh, that's why we call it Rondori and not sparring. We'll use the word, but I always have to explain it so that people get it that it's not just duking it out like everybody else is, while yeah. other referees are calling points. Yeah, hmm. uh, yeah points. Uh, it's always a dumb thing, right? There's always yeah. all these rules wrapped around it, and you know, so. Uh, the only rule that's really in that sparring thing is you have to grab the flag. So in that context, there's no kicking. But um, yeah. in the circle of confidence, somebody learned the other day, they came rushing right in. Uh, after all the students were done, I said, did everybody go? Anybody not go? And they all looked at me and went, yeah, you didn't. <laughs> all right, I guess. So <laughs> I go in the middle, and, you know, I'm having my fun and all that, right? And one of the students decides they're just going to come in really fast, get inside, and get their thing. And um, I kicked him as soon as he got in range, very lightly, but I kicked him in the gut. And I said, you left yourself open while coming in to attack me. That was dumb because I don't have to wait for you to attack. You put yourself in range, and you're Uh not guarded, and you're not profiled, and your targets are open. I'm going to tag them. I'd be stupid to let you get nose-to-nose with me. I think anybody that stands up with somebody else, nose-to-nose, talking smack, deserves every bit of the punishment they're about to get because they're in the wrong place. They cannot possibly see this guy pull a knife or whatever, and they're not going to know anything's happening until they feel that burn in their gut or whatever's going on. That is just dumb. They're nose-to-nose, literally nose-to-nose, barking at each other like uh, the Mayweather... uh, uh, McGregor, 
kind of thing yeah, that I just saw. Right. Uh, in each other's face. Yeah. If you guys are really that tough, don't bother getting in the ring, right? Just deck them now, right? But they're going to get that close and then wait for the other guy to throw a punch to know that they're being attacked. I see this in right. boxing uh, yeah. circles all the time in the pre-fight PR things and all that and how uh-huh. they've broken out into fights. Well, yeah. The, yeah. The, the one guy always gets nailed because he can't respond fast enough to the first guy's uh, uppercut or whatever his first move is. It's just, right. it's just dumb. It's just caveman stuff, right? You don't need the secrets of lineages that are nine to eighteen hundred years old. Well, actually, lower than that, right? What are they? Five to eighteen hundred years old. Um, this knowledge that passed from China, actually passed from the Himalayas to China to Japan to us. You don't need those secrets to defend against somebody who's just going to throw shit at you. Right? Now, if you don't know anything, do what you can. But we're not studying to become masters of combat to fight like cavemen. I mean, where is the logic in that? Right? So the yeah. answer, the, the original answer to his question, for use for combat, you know, are they really good for, for practice for combat? Um, the answer is depends on how you use them, but to use the first one, it was just to keep your waza or your individual skills honed, and so they'd string them together and kind of visualize somebody coming at them, and eventually these things got formed. So, yeah, they, they must be because they lasted for hundreds of thousands of years um, as, a, as a good model for doing that. Have they been lost to time? Yeah, because I don't think most instructors uh, were taught that or know that, but that's what they're there for. Okay. Um, in the modern world, again, if you're using them the way they're being passed on, then no. If you're using them based on their original premise, then yes. Our uh, the kata kanji that we use, yes. The original premise was this is a pattern, model, uh, or mold to help you get the principles and concepts because you're getting instant feedback from an attacker. So yes, this the, our kata are actually more similar to what in those karate camps that use the other kanji, uh, what they would call self-defense training, right? Because that's the only, the only time, that and sparring is the only time you're actually duking it out with or you're, you're engaged with somebody else, right? To them, kata is solo practice. Then you have self-defense where you have somebody else grabbing you or throwing a punch and you do this and this and this uh, as kind of a model, right? Or they're the examples, right, of how you might do things. Uh, and then you have the sparring, right? In most yeah. cases, and from my experience, they look like com- three completely different things. Three completely different things, right? Which is what never made sense to me. If the kata is containing the lessons for combat, why does myself? Why do they? Why don't they look like self-defense? And why, when we're sparring, do people only pull one or two punches or one or two kicks or whatever as their favorites, and that's all they ever do, right? Out of all these skills, right? When I got involved in this, and the kata are the self-defense uh, techniques, and the sparring is supposed to look like the kata and the self-defense techniques, see, that's unified. That's back to the Gyoko-ryu principle of three and one, one and three, right? Mm. So one thing, three aspects to it, or three three uses, right, learning, Defense, 
actual combat, whatever, or sparring, whatever you want to call it, right? That they can't be discerned from each other because they're exactly the same thing. Three and one, one and three. Right? So, hmm. anyway, sorry, I talked a lot about on that one subject, but no, it's uh, great. A great I, question from Michael there in Toronto, and sadly, not enough time yeah. for my death question. Bummer. Well, I guess we're going to have to save that for another one. Well, actually, that'll give me some more time. So if you're interested in hearing about death um, <laughs> next time around, what I was going to answer, you had something about the way the ninja and the uh, samurai saw death and how they might have responded to it or whatever. Uh, and we yeah. can, again, we can approach this from many different angles, but uh, what I want to uh, you know, both of them accepted death, right? Because, I mean, the base lesson was being a warrior, right? They mm-hmm. accepted death. If you're going to be in this situation, then, you know, you have to accept the consequences, right? You have to accept that the worst can happen. Um, but here's something to think about. Where the samurai typically involve themselves in Shinto and, to some extent, Buddhism, because we, we have to go beyond or back farther than even when Buddhism was introduced into Japan, right? The the mm. warrior stuff was going on before that stuff was there, right? So they had Shinto and a lot of these things that just kind of filtered in from uh, from China and, and whatnot. And things that were indigenous and, and uh, formed there. But where the samurai were all about um, ancestral worship and, um, you know, glorifying death and things like that, um, the uh, the ninja remember they they were all about you know running away to fight another day and stuff like that which of course you know the, the samurai pointed out the cowardly nature of this whatever no the the protection of family and the accomplishment of the mission were more important than how I died right hmm. why I'm dying is more important than because remember the samurai from birth going into a family that already had allegiance to a specific lord. And that person was bound by honor to carry out the instructions of this lord no matter what. So even yeah. if this guy became a crazy madman, tough, you're stuck, right? If you don't want to do what he wants to do, then to save face and to not have dishonor fall upon the rest of your family, you need to commit seppuku, kitty, right? So there's a problem, right? Um, where there's examples in ninja history on Togakure Mountain, no less, right? When Oda Nobunaga sent a bunch of troops up there uh, to kill every man, woman, and child that had this belief system, right? Um, what they did was they dug up their dead and dressed them up in combat uniforms and propped them up behind trees and fallen logs and all that to make it look like there were more combatants than there actually were so the enemy would waste arrows and and uh, uh, hmm. time attacking corpses and then be tagged, you know, in the process. So uh, does that mean that they, you know, felt differently about ancestor worship? They were okay with desecrating bodies and all that? Um, yeah, no, I, I can't answer that question because I wasn't there, but it's mm-hmm. an example, right, that, yeah. uh, you know, death was seen differently. And then, you know, when the, when the Mikyo teachings came in and the ninja uh, more and more aligned themselves with those teachings, uh, then there was more of a pronounced difference just in the way they viewed everything, right? So, but ninjas tend to look at things as tools uh, 
for the accomplishment of specific things. And in the example I just gave, um, they needed a bigger force. Well, they didn't have a bigger force, and they didn't have time to recruit a bigger force. So somebody came up with the idea of, no, we do have them. Here's what we'll do, right? It's mm -hmm. a distraction technique, right? Yeah. Um, uh, where the, the samurai were more about classifying things and everything that you touched had, you had to, you had to, uh, you had to operate it or touch it or interact with it a very specific way. You know, the size of things was regulated and how you moved and, hmm. uh, you know, all those things, right? So where one group was very regimented and everything was regulated, the other one was really about being a free thinker. So here's our ideology, here's what our clan or, or family stands for, that kind of thing. So, um and I'm sure that they told people, if you don't like that, you're going to have to leave kind of thing. Um, but this is what we stand for. But, um, you know, if we get new information that allows us to produce better results, then we're going to jump on those things. Where the samurai tended to exclude anything that was not passed down from the ancestors who had the wisdom of the ages or whatever. Which is really funny because martial arts uh, lineages – like the uh, Tagagi Ocean View and, and a lot of these things, right? They were actually formed out of the recognition that the old stuff didn't work against hmm. new types of fighting or whatever. So, but you know, you hold on, to, hold on to things. Uh, and there was still there was lots of wisdom into holding on to things. Uh, in the last the movie, The Last Samurai, uh, one of my favorite quotes was when Alderan uh, was countering a statement made by somebody that these guys were still fighting with uh, swords and bows and arrows. And he yeah. said, right, people that have perfected the, the art of warfare for over a thousand years. So they got really good at using those yeah. swords and bows and arrows and, and, you know, those ancient weapons. So, uh, and that in of itself reminds me of a meme I just saw on Facebook, which was uh, never, never underestimate an old man who uh, is alive in an, in a field or time when men die young, hmm. right? So <laughs> the guy right. that's still alive, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's figured out how to stay alive against dumb people like you. So anyway. sure. All right. I see, <laughs> well, that'd be a great topic right. for we need next to start week. calling people names again. That's right. Um, can, you know, can we take like three, four minutes here just to see if anybody has any questions that popped up? Yeah. Let's steal some time. All right, so uh, you might have to unmute people. I see Josh is on. He's one of our regulars. I don't see Lee on that side, but while we'll see if Josh has any questions, I'm going to jump over onto the webcast side and see if any questions came in there. All right. Josh, anything? Hello? Anyone have any questions? Hi, guys. Hello. You guys can show visual. Oh, thanks, Josh. I was about to I say Josh enjoying, is uh... dead. <laughs> we killed him, Josh, with our with our long conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, people I'm may here. be asleep in, in front of the devices. Yeah, you are. You're there. I'm. I'm actually checking the the uh, webcast side for questions. So, by all means, if you have a question or comment other than "Hey, good show, guys." Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had 
to do that one at least once. Any questions, Josh? Or you just no, just good. Barring, and um, I thought the um, it, it is one thing that I miss, but I think the uh, when I when we've done it in other martial arts, in a, with really the regard for sport, really competition, you know, scoring mm-hmm. points, and never really. Uh, always with rules in place, and I think the worst, um, I think the worst times when people you see people really get violent is when they're actually not making contact with each other, um, because then they mm-hmm. get into this thing. Well, I could have, I could have killed you, but you know you right. didn't. Right. Right. You were actually right. you missed, and or they want to duke it out in the parking so, lot afterwards because they'll get disqualified in the, in the tournament. So uh, yeah. So um, actually, and you'll go through this with me, because Josh is one of my, my local guys. Um, I actually have five levels for uh, development of sparring, and only level five looks like what most people are used to seeing when they see sparring. Because growing up through those different martial arts, I really did, uh, one, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, from a learning perspective, once I saw the difference between kata and self-defense and the sparring and how, it's like I'm learning three different things at one time. Once I made that connection and, uh, you know, saw the, I don't know, the lack of structure, I guess, in the, in the sparring, um, the lack of the, lack of use of the principles and concepts and, uh, whatever. So what I did was, uh, I, I broke things down and, and one of my teachers did this as well. So I borrowed some of this from him as far as what goes where, but we broke it down into five, phases or five levels so that each level allowed you to get good in a dynamic environment, in a, in a, in a free flow kind of thing against somebody uh, throwing something, but you can get good at a particular part of your skill set, a particular waza. So the way it works is uh, mod one people, right, are learning basic kamai, right? Everybody is, right? Uh, so somewhere around uh, middle of mod one into mod two, uh, you start working on level one in the sparring, which is people are throwing whatever they want, and you're just getting out of the way in Kamai, and you do that until you get good enough and things are wired into muscle memory well enough that when you get out of the way in Kamai, you don't have to think about it. It becomes an auto response. And while it's going to be rough around the edges because it's more uh, dynamic and it's less step-by-step, um, you are in Kamai. You are in decent combat Kamai, right? And then in Mod 2, you learn these counter strikes and how to, uh, in, in Mod 3, you learn a couple of different ones as well, but you learn how to punish that limb when it's coming in or to knock it out of the way and break their balance and create an opening for yourself, okay? So guess what level 2 sparring is? Right, going to Kamai and using or not using a counter-strike because you recognize when you have an opportunity or when you don't, okay? So you've learned it. You shouldn't have to think about how to take up the Kamai because that's first-level training as far as the step-by-step Kata or Waza-type training, right? You learn to take these things. So level two sparring 
assumes that you already know how to do that, so now we're going to get good at delivering the Counter-Strike or knowing when we should or when we shouldn't. Level three, right, because now we've got a bunch of techniques under our belt, mod one, mod two, into mod three, a little bit into mod four. We have uh, this thing where we've gotten out of the way, delivered a Counter-Strike, and came back in with something that was a counterattack with the lead side of our body that stalled them so that they couldn't do what they wanted to do, and that left an opening for us to be able to do our cool move, okay, whether it's a throw or a knockdown or whatever, okay? So level three sparring is just about going to Kamai, delivering the counter-strike, and immediately dropping in for that stall or that counter-attack, or not if you recognize that, oh, the counter-strike counter -strike to the arm, didn't work. He's coming in with another one. I've got to go to Kamai deliver another Counter Strike. So it's knowing when you have the opportunity or not to come in with that Counter Strike that's going to break his balance. Does this sound familiar at all? It fits the five D's. Okay. So you get really good at that until and at each of these stages, you're good enough to go to the next stage when you can do it correctly eight out of ten times. Okay. It's correct eight out of ten times. Okay. So we're only looking for an 80% success rate. It's good, right? What's the other 20% for? Luck. Okay? You can't discount luck. Level hmm. four sparring actually goes back to the first things you learned in mod one. And uh, what you're going to be doing is evasion, evading strikes, kicks, and grabs, and all that. So we either bind your hands or we have you reach behind yourself and tuck your hands into your belt. So you can't use your hands. Okay. So you're, you're going right back to going to Kamai and evading. But the reason why we take your hands away is to make sure that you're not doing things out of sync and relying on your counter-striking or parrying, but you're leaving your body behind and not really realizing it. So your head is on counter-striking and counter-attacking, but your targets are open. So if you screw something up, it's not going to be good. right? So we take your hands away from you to make sure that it really is Taijutsu, it really is body motion. And then, once you're good at that, then you can have everything back again, and you should know, because you went through one through three, you're really sure that you're, you know, you're not in danger yourself. Now at level five, we can go to what most people think of as sparring. We're able to go to Kamai, let a punch go by or a kick go by or whatever if we don't have an opportunity. We're able to get out of the way and counter-strike if it's there. We're able to get out of the way and counter-strike. And if we realize that we have him for half a second, we can deliver that next thing that's going to break his balance, stall his body. And we now are working on, at level five, working on getting good at slipping in to catch that wrist reversal or to catch that throw or to catch that arm bar or to deliver our kick or punch or whatever when he can't stop it. So if we move in and deliver that thing that's supposed to unbalance him, but we recognize that he's catching himself and will never make it before he has a chance to counter, we reset to zero and wait for his next attack. So you get good at not just doing the skills, but knowing when you've earned the right or the, the privilege to do the next piece. So it's about strategic thinking and tactical application and all that, and being able to do it instinctively, intuitively, um, on the fly, and not just, you know, well, Kata training, Kata training, and sparring looks like what everybody else does in, in sparring. No, no, no. We need to get as close to fight-like as possible. It's never going to be a fight in the dojo. But we need to have the skill base 
and we need to be able to, to, to mentally and physically carry out the principles and concepts when they're doing their thing, right? So I've broken these things into, into five logical uh, levels, and everybody needs to get good at each level eight out of ten times before you're allowed to go to the next one. Sometimes, just because of what we're doing in class, I'll pick a level, and we're going to do that, but it's to highlight for people who aren't ready that you need to put more time into your other level because, you know, we could be working on level one, and I could tell people, you got to fix this before you go on to level two, and they just go, okay, okay, but they're really hoping that I let them go on to level two. I throw them into a level two sparring thing, and they screw up a couple of times. Guess who decides they need more work on level one? Them. Okay? Hmm. Nobody wants to be told what to do, but we're all adamant about doing what we decide is important for us. Hmm. So as a ninja mind science master, right, I help you come to the recognition that you suck too much to be at this level. You need to put more work into the other level, or you suck too much at that level to be here. Okay? And you've experienced this, Eric. I know you have mm -hmm. because – You've been in classes where we're doing Senundo again, or we're doing one of these things where I know people need work, and everybody's looking like, oh, God, not this again. And I go, okay, let's, let's do something interesting. Let's, let's do this fourth Don Kata. Everybody's like <laughs> chomping at the bits. Awesome, yes. Right? And then I let you flounder with that for about 15, 20 minutes until I see the look of, mm, is that right, not right, frustration, whatever, on different eyes, and I go, yeah, this isn't working. I'm going to go back up. Let's go back to Senendo a little bit, right? Uh, just, mm -hmm. to, just to kind of – and the look in people's eyes that says, oh, thank God, something I can actually do, right? It's just priceless, right? <laughs> because I have to let them hit a wall to recognize that their Senendo sucks because they're not hitting the right angles to be able to even enter, right? Um, and the only way to do that is to give them, give them what they want so they can recognize what they need. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah. like that time I asked to test for Sandan because I thought I was ready. <laughs> sure. I to laugh. <laughs> no, it was funny. You weren't laughing that day. No, and, but and it was a great you, learning what, experience. Yeah. What did you do to prep for Sandan? Uh, not near Boned enough. up on your Nidan techniques. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it was good. But what happened to the next test? Uh, the day. next test, yeah, yeah, it came much later, yeah. but uh, was was good. Yeah. You aced that test, <laughs> and that's the way, that's the way it should work, right? I mean, yeah, and that's the way to tell whether somebody's heart's really in it, right? Do they get angry at me for failing them, or do they recognize, oh man, I, oh, okay, all right, next time, there's no way. Because that's the way it should be if you're really focusing on, on improvement, right? You never forget the answers you got wrong. Yeah. Right? And and the problem for most people is that they try to cram for a test in what we're doing like they cram for tests in high school or college. And we all know what happens after you cram for a test and you take the test. You may get a good grade on the test, but what happens? To, what, what's going on in your head the day after? All, all the, the information weekend? gets flushed away. Yeah, you it's forget gone. It it's gone. It's <laughs> gone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What people need to remember is that when you take a test in something like this, that's a symbol, or that's a uh, a recognition of what your skill level is and what you'll be carrying forward. You can't forget it, right? Just because you got the belt 
right? The the only test that matters is when somebody's coming up to stick a knife in you or punch you in the throat or whatever. That's the only test that ever is it ever going to matter, right? So this is a warning to everybody. Do not cram for a test just to pass the test because the only thing or only person is going to benefit is your ego. Great. You got that piece of cloth, but now what? Mm-hmm. Right? And way more people need more structure to their training. I know it's not their fault because it's the way most instructors are training because they train seminar style or teaching their classes like the seminar style that goes on in classes in Japan. But the, you know, since I said a long, long time ago, the job of the Shidoshi is to put together a curriculum to lead your students through so they can learn the, the, the fundamentals and the elements necessary to understand what I'm doing in class. Shit, 80% of the people that show up for training with Hudson Sensei have no idea what he's doing in class. Yeah. So, <laughs> how do they pass, including they pass me. that on to their freaking students? What's that? I say including me, because yeah, so, I always love going well, and, to the class and then, let's go to Shiraishi's class so we can yeah, get see, deeper into what the and, heck was even going on. And what is he doing? He's focusing on basics, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. The pieces necessary to understand. And I did that. I, you know, for years I went to Hatsumi Sensei's class, but I knew in my heart I was going because he was the example of the goal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I went and I, you know, tried to figure things out. It's kind of like immersing yourself in a, in a culture where you don't know the language and you're just overwhelmed in the beginning. You have no idea what they're saying, but over time you start being able to pick things out but at the same time, I had instructors that I went to that they took it very seriously. They broke things down, created a structured curriculum so that I could get good at the pieces. That way when he's doing something and somebody looks all confused and I, I go, that part right there that's a counter, um, the person was trying to slip on – or he was trying to slip on an onikodaki and it slipped away and then he changed it into this other thing, right? Mm. And that's when I know whether the other person is actually focusing on fundamentals because if they look at me and go – Onikodaki. Is that one of those like basics that like in the Kionapo kind of? Nope. I don't know. I never bothered to learn those things. And I don't know. I got this rank now. There's no point in trying to learn them now. Well, then you're always going to be freaking lost because if you don't have these reference points, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're just trying to. Wow. Why don't you just throw yourself on an inner tube on one of these wild rivers and stuff? No oars, uh, no, you know, paddles, no nothing, uh, and just see where it takes you. What the hell? You know? Mm. Um, and so much of what you talked about on this call today, really, uh, I mean, those are the things, those those kata, the basic fundamental ones, as you've often taught on, we're learning the fundamental principle that that particular example is doing. So be it onikidaki, but then moving on to the various different kata beyond that, but they all kind of point back to that simple principle of, you know, breaking that balance line and the spine. And, and so it just... Right. how those things evolve, but really ultimately come back to another version or a different model for doing that same thing. Well, and how do you learn countering? How do you learn the advanced stuff of, of escaping from an onikodaki if you don't know how it's applied, if you don't know what it's doing mm. to the system? And i got to tell you, I've, I've seen – my brother is so into, like, WWE wrestling and all this, like, you know, stupidity and stuff, right? He likes it for the entertainment value. But you know how many people watch that stuff? And I've seen them use some of this stuff in fights. There is an onikudaki-like thing that they do. Of course, it's done very safely where the arm is, the lower arm is right in line with the upper arm, and it's not out to the side, it's in front. But they use it as a takedown, right? I've seen that done in jiu-jitsu classes and all that. There are these people that are watching that stuff, 
and screwing around with their friends and getting good at putting those things on. So if you don't know what it's doing to your body and you haven't worked with that kind of thing and understanding when it works, when it doesn't work, you know, where your arm is, where you can slip it and where you're screwed and need to do a back vault or whatever, then, you know, one of these things can be used against you really, really quickly, right? So yeah. um, be careful. Well, we are running close to being cut off on our time here, so we are. I know it's an hour. We don't show want that to happen. So anyway, uh, yeah, cool. So um, Josh, I don't know if that was an extra help or not. I just you, know, you mentioned the, the sparring, but I will be taking you through five levels of sparring for proficiency, so that uh, your sparring doesn't look useless, or the kata don't look useless, or whatever. Okay, fair enough. I look I look forward to it. Yeah. Fantastic. Me too. I can't wait to throw you around. That's <laughs> <laughs> just always that bonus, right? Actually what you should be looking for is the day that you can throw me around. Hmm. Don't study and practice to get good at your skills. Have an end game. My end game when I got involved in this art, I was a police officer. My end game was not just to not die on the street. My end game was to be able to handle whatever an aggressive perpetrator decided he was going to throw at me or somebody else, and I would be able to get him under control very, very quickly with minimum effort. That was my end game. Okay? That was my end game. And a lot of these guys, when I first started, I was very, very young. Okay? A lot of these guys I'd be up against, career criminals, street fighters, all that kind of stuff, were going to be way better than me in experience and time in. How do I deal with that? So when I went to class, my end game was, am I any closer to being able to deal with one of these jack wagons who are really they're going to try to beat, break, maim, or kill me, right? So, uh, and, you, and again, you can have whatever end game, end game you want, but I, my suggestion for people that are in this for self-defense, don't focus on the techniques, okay? And I, I think I said this last show, or I, I do coaching calls all the time, so uh, pardon me if this is a, is a redundancy. Don't practice until you can do the skill. Don't practice until you can do the technique. Practice until you can't get it wrong. Hmm. Hmm. Okay? That's why I'm still training. There's techniques that I can do, but I'm not I'm not confident that I can't not get it right, that I, I you know, won't screw it up. So, or there's scenarios where I might have to apply that. Whatever. That's what keeps me traveling. That's what has me going through a whole new cycle now with somebody that has me focusing on the bare bones basics from a combat perspective, which is straight off the scrolls, by the way. That's the combat perspective, right? No deviation. Be able to do it this way, like that first Kata model. Be able to do it this way, and until you can copy me and do it exactly right, with your form, we don't do any handcuff. We don't do any variation. There are no distractions. You focus on this. And I've carried that over to the dojo because this month, and probably for a lot longer, we're focusing on Chino Waza, right? Not Chino Kata. We're focusing on the striking, um, just the, the punch, the initial punch in uh, the Chino Kata model, right? So going from the rear position through the stationing position, which is where you're forward on your lead leg, 
through to the uh, attacking position, and we're doing it with ski, right? Um, and then occasionally we throw in like the, the uh, uh, pendulum striking and all that. But the, the basic we're getting good on is striking from behind cover. At no point ever during that strike is there not a limb in front of me that prevents them from just punching something that's open. Hmm. So we're doing it with swords, we're doing it with staff, we're doing it with spear, we're doing it unarmed. It's the same move. That's the chinowaza of striking, right? There's the sanshin of striking, there's the sanshin of footwork. Okay? So people leave with sore legs. They leave with sore I know I do. Right? If they're leaving with muscles less sore than mine, they're not doing it right. Because I've been doing this for a lot longer. Okay, well, we're about to get okay. dropped on this, so <laughs> Damn it. better wrap it up okay. before it cuts cool. us off. Yeah, well, we could talk about this forever, but anyway. Yeah. So, cool. I, I really appreciate the people that show up. I know that not everyone can do this because of where you live in the world and timing and all that, but thank you for taking the time out of your day to invest more into yourself because this isn't stroking our egos. We're going we're gonna to do the show whether anybody shows up or not because we're going to put it out as a recording. We're looking at getting it on iTunes and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this is just us sharing things. This is us you know, sharing topics and, and doing what we love. Um, we don't feel bad if nobody shows up. But for those of you that are able to show up and for those of you that are listening to the recording of it, uh, you know, uh, regularly, right, that you're on, uh, we really appreciate you. So feel free to, to share these things around. They're free, so feel free to share, share them. My only suggestion, it would be if you, when you share it, also share the uh, subscription uh, link that we put out uh, where people can sign up to be on it or at least the Facebook page or whatever. That way they can do the same thing and, and get connected. All right, that's all I have. Great. Awesome. And I uh, hope everybody has a great weekend and week. And remember, you can join it live uh, as well if you're listening to this as a recording, live uh, on uh, Fridays from 230 uh, East Coast time, 11.30 West Coast time. So until next week, have a, have a great week and weekend. Thank you for listening to KUDET, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Sheehan Miller, or to submit a question or discussion topic to the show, call 570-884-1118 or visit warrior-concepts-online.com.